0: Turn to your copy of the Scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke uh, and verse 17. Uh, Luke verse, uh, excuse me, not verse, chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Uh, Once you get there, look to verse 20. We're finishing up Luke 17 today and we're starting in verse 20. Uh, Luke 17 beginning in verse 20. Um, If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the voice and the word of our King Jesus, and follow along as I read aloud Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. This is what the word of God says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. When the son of man is revealed on that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember lots wife, whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, two will be in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Stephen Covey was a leader and businessman who was very influential for quite some time. And even though he died in 2012, his influence has remained alive and pretty well. Of the many books that he wrote, the most popular by far was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And habit number two is begin with the end in mind, which is our sermon title for today. I chose that title for a few different reasons, uh, which I'll explain as we continue in the sermon. But first of all, I'm going to do something a little different today because I'm actually going to preach the second part of our text first. I want to direct our attention to uh, verses 22 through 37 first, and then I'm going to come back and in the time we have left, unpack the first two verses because as I've studied and as I've prayed this past week, I actually think that's the better place for us to land, and that's where I want us uh, to be thinking about and drawing our application from. Now, the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, didn't understand that Jesus came to provide access to a spiritual kingdom. We've covered this before. Uh, They didn't understand that he came to provide access that we'd never gain ourselves if left to ourselves. They were expecting Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. And so here we have Jesus doing what he's done so many other times throughout the Gospel of Luke, simply dismantling the incorrect preconceived notions that the Pharisees had, And telling them how they should really understand his purpose for coming to earth. So, let's begin with the end in mind and look at point number one, which is this. You can know what the second coming of Christ will be like. You can. You can know what the second coming of Christ will be like. It's always been the case when discussing the second coming of Christ that people tend to obsess with what they Don't know and can't know instead of focusing on what we can know and do know based on the word of God. And so instead of obsessing over what we don't know and can't know, we do well to focus on what the Lord does want us to know. And there's quite a bit of it actually. And it's what is clearly laid out in Scripture. In our text today, Christ himself gives us seven aspects of his return to consider that I believe you can understand at just a prima facie reading of the text. And so just by reading through the text, you don't need certain certain charts and graphs. You don't need a magic eight ball. You don't need anything like that. You can just read the text and see what the Lord is telling us. And so I want to show you the seven aspects, seven important aspects of Christ's return that we see in our text today. And so we'll start with number one, which is in verse 22. The first aspect of Christ's return that we can see is this. Christians will want it. Christians will want it. Uh, Look at verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will what? Desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Christians will want it. But then the verse says, and you will not see it. Now, I don't consider myself to be uh, pretty good at picturing heaven. I don't know that many people are that good because most people, like me, have not been there and then come and told us about it. And that kid who said he did, like, no one really believes him. And so I'm not good at picturing, like, we don't build our theology around nine year olds or whatever. Like, that's not cool. So I don't, I don't, I have trouble picturing heaven. Whenever I start thinking about what heaven will be like, I inevitably realize I am thinking about Earth because it's the only planet I've lived on. And so I start thinking of it in terms of my life now. So I hear that there'll be members of every tribe and tongue and nation. And I'm like, that's cool. I, can, I can't really realize. Like, New York City, where I grew up, members of every tribe and tongue and nation, the melting pot. And then I start thinking about how cool that'll be. And then I just start thinking, like, my mind wanders, and I'm like, there's, that's a lot of people. And that I'm, there's probably... There's got to be lines, is what I'm thinking. There's gonna with that many people. There's gonna be like lines aren't necessarily a result of the fall, and so it's heaven, so we won't mind the lines. But I bet there's gonna be lines. So if you get there before me, do me a solid and save me a place in whatever line you're in. Let me back cut you. Remember back cutting? Like let me let me do that, and I'll do that for you. So that's what I mean. I'm not I'm not good at thinking through these things because they are quite frankly otherworldly. They're literally otherworldly, and so instead of me thinking of them on my own. Then I try to look to Scripture to try to understand what the second coming might be like, what heaven might be like. And so keep your finger in uh, Luke 17 and flip over to the book of Revelation and look at verse uh, chapter, rather, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And something I appreciate about the book of Revelation is you can. Here's John explaining to us what was revealed, what was revealed to him and what he sees, and he struggles in doing so. He doesn't have the language to do that well because he has experienced something, again, otherworldly. And so there's lots of mixed metaphors and this was like, it's kind of like this, but it's not really that. And you could just see that, that we're going to experience something that literally like scripture says no eye has seen no ear has heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him and so we do our best but our best still falls short so for example in revelation 4 uh let's pick it up in verse 6 and so this is uh John trying to explain what he saw when he came to the throne room or the throne that is in heaven and verse 6 he says this and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures okay full of eyes in front and behind. I'm out. Like, I don't know what that means. That's so, like, full of eyes front and back. I have trouble picturing that. Uh, let's move on. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. I'm like, okay, I get it. I can picture, like, I've been to the zoo. I know a lion. And like, no, I didn't say a lion. I said like a lion. It's like, oh, I know an ox. It's like an ox. It's not an ox though. It's like an ox. And it's like a creature. It's a creature like an eagle in flight. Verse 7. And then there's a creature with the face of a man. And it doesn't say like. Great. So he's a legit face of a man. Like that's it. I can't picture this. This is very hard for me to picture. Verse 8. And the four living creatures that were just described. Each of them with six wings. That's a lot of wings. It's just a lot. of. So I've, I've seen creatures with two wings. I've seen planes with two wings. Like that's. Six wings. What do you do with six? All with six wings are full of. There it is again. The eyes. So many eyes are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come." Now, if that description of his vision gets you excited about heaven, great. It 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 does not. Uh, scare me, I believe every word of it, it's hard for me to picture it and so I read it believing it 100% but it doesn't like jazz me up to see the eyeball people or, or, or like I, don't, I, can't, I can't picture that and so I know I'm going to see it, I know I'm going to understand it uh, but I'd be lying if I read that and thought that gets me out of bed in the morning, all the wings and the eyes. It just doesn't and so I'm not good in thinking of it on, in, on my own I believe what I see in the Word of God, but I'm not good at picturing that either. Flip over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Let's see what the Word says here. Verse, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's like, okay, so that which I know, God. Okay. And I saw the holy city, okay, New Jerusalem, okay, it's a city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is a sparkling, perfect, flawless, faultless city. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay. And so now instead of there being this separation, God is literally, will literally be with us. Not just, in, and I can kind of, like as a Christian, I have the, I've got the Holy Spirit indwelling me. It's like, oh, Wow. So now he'll not just be indwelling me, but he will be here. His dwelling place will be here. I don't fully understand that, but that that actually does excite me. Like, that's going to be cool. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear, every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and now I read that and I say, ha. Huh, now we're talking. Now we're talking. I know some of you have spent a good portion of this week in tears. I know some of you might have been in tears just before walking in this building. I have cried. And the times when I cry are not times that I look back to and be like, those were high watermark moments of my life. I cry because I'm sad. I cried because I'm grieving. I cry because I'm confused. I've never known a life without sadness, but I know sadness. And to picture my life without that, I can look forward to that. Death shall be no more. Man, we've all experienced, I would imagine, the loss of of a loved one particularly the untimely loss of a loss of a loved one someone who we believe was just taken too soon but even if it was timely someone lived a very full life even if that person was a christian and we will see them again if we're christians that's great and still horrible because as happy as you are that they're in heaven, it reminds you of the fact that they are not here. To not have to deal with that, I can wrap my mind around that. I'd love that. Bring it on. I don't get the eyeball thing. <laughs> but I'd love to give not having to cry a shot. I'd love to see what life is like without any mourning. Or pain. We've all experienced pain. Some of you rarely don't experience pain. And I just wonder, you know what, let's do this. Just show of hands. When you hear that there will be no pain anymore, how many of you, you say that resonates with me or with someone I know? No pain, I, that's going to be great. Raise your hand if that's you. You think I, that's either me or I know someone, right? That's exciting. Now we're talking. Now I'm looking forward. Now I, wow, what's that going to be like? That's going to be great. Or sometimes there's times when you have two choices to make and both of them stink. You're not choosing between right and wrong. You're choosing between good, better, and best, but it just seems like you're choosing between bad and worse and worst. Do I go on the, It's terminal, so do I go on the medication regimen, which will likely extend my life but bring down my quality of life, or do I not take that medication and keep my quality of life but then shorten my life? Both of those stink. They, they just stink. And being in that place where you want to make a decision and just think, I'm excited about neither. I bet there's a, a right one or a better one. And I'm dre- I dread both. I dread both. That's not going to be a thing. No more pain. No more suffering. No more death. No mourning nor crying. So back to our text in Luke 17, Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. But you know what? You won't see it. You'll be dying for it to come, but it's not time. You'll be longing for relief, but it's not God's time. You'll go through a difficult process, might even be going through a difficult process Right now, and you, along with the word of God, would say, Come, Lord Jesus. And God says, In my time, He will come. There will be a time. One of the aspects of the second coming is Christians like you and like me will desire it, especially when we don't see it. We're like, Man, I wish Jesus would return. I want it long before it happens. I yearn for it, I ache for it. One aspect of the second coming is Christians will want it. Number two, another aspect of the second coming, everyone will see it. Uh, Luke 17, 23 and 24 says this, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. And so that's for the, if somebody tries to like localize Jesus' return. And so some of us, many of us are old enough to remember the Waco and Waco. Do you remember that? Okay, so here's David Koresh claiming to be the, the the son of God incarnate. And so you will never hear about the second coming from the news. You'll never be like, wow, I'm glad I was glad I opened up that feed because I would have missed it. So when someone says, like, look, Jesus is over here, and you'll be like, Where? Oh, okay, that's not gonna happen. And so Everyone will know about it. When someone says, look, he's over there. Look, you're not going to be like, where, where? I'm not good with distance. Oh, there. That's not this thing. Everyone will know about it. And you see the next verse says, it's like lightning. Uh, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Um, Just FYI, my, my wife is a weather geek. A weather geek. She gets jazzed by the weather. Some of you are smiling because you're like, "I've me too. We can start a care group for this and support one another. We love She's got so, so many apps. She'll send me screenshots of the radar and say, be careful driving home. I don't know what the, I don't, now I'm just scared in general. I don't know what this means. Is it going to hail? Is it going to snow? And when weather comes, I mean, this is, this is her time. She lives for this. And so about once a year, maybe, once a year, if that, uh, we'll go to the basement because one of the storms looks like, eh, we probably should, you know, take cover. When we first moved here, I was like, anytime there's a siren, I'm like, we're, I'm out. Like, I, I was, I don't know how to do tornadoes. I've only seen the Wizard of Oz. That worked really, that was hard. And so now I realize, okay, they're not all, but sometimes... Thanks to the siren and my wife's 11 apps, we can realize, like, this one's legit. We probably should go to the basement. So we'll get the kids together, and we will head down to the basement. My wife heads to the window. Now, not just the window, the bay window. Because as you know, when there's rough weather in the area, the safest place to be is, A, the perimeter of the home, and B, surrounded by as much glass as possible. <laughs> I'm taking the kids. They're like, where's mom? I'm like, she, she's flirting with death. She'll be down with us in a minute. <laughs> The Lord's been kind. She'll probably make it. And so when there's lightning, uh, this Friday there was lightning. She didn't do it. But usually when there's a big flash of lightning, she will usually text me or come and get me if I'm in the house and say, "Did did you see the lightning? And it's only for big flashes of lightning that I couldn't miss. And so... It's usually like, did you did you see the lightning? And I'm like, yeah, I saw the light. You couldn't not see the lightning. This Friday, I'm sitting in the living room, um, and I'm I'm watching a little bit of TV. And we have uh, windows over here and windows over here. And lightning flashed, and you could I just saw it out of the periphery. Of both of my eyes, like, wow, it was really really bright. You couldn't not see it. It's not like it's only over here. And I was looking over here. It's like, oh, I missed the lightning. Lightning lights up the sky. You can't miss it. There's no way you cannot see. If you have vision, you can't not see it. And so uh, when Jesus returns, no one will have to call it to your attention. That's the, the purpose of that illustration is to say, like, it's going to be like lightning. Like, it's going to be unmistakable, undeniable. No one's going to say, was that Jesus or was it, you know, was that thunder or was that an airplane? That's, no one's going to say that when Jesus comes back. It will be unmistakable, undeniable. You will know it. You will see it. Uh, aspect number two, everyone will see it. Uh, Number three, verse 25, rejection will delay it. Uh, Look at verse 25. But first it is necessary that he suffer, he, Jesus, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So part of that prophecy was fulfilled, right? Because Jesus has already suffered many things. He's not suffering anymore. He will never suffer again. So part of that prophecy has been fulfilled. uh, But the other part of it that says he must be rejected by this generation, that's being fulfilled. And so rejection is delays, if you will, the second coming. That's not to say Jesus is up in heaven saying, I want to go, but there's so much rejection. When will they roll out a welcome mat? But it's just saying the rejection will happen before Jesus comes. And so as that's happening, we are not surprised. Jesus is not surprised. God is not surprised. The word of God is not surprised. There will be rejection that will happen in between his first coming and his second coming. Uh, Number four, uh, even though everyone will see it when it happens, you won't see it coming. Uh, You won't see it. Coming, you'll know when it happens, but you're not going to be able to say, oh, this is it. And for so long, so many people have done, he's, this is it. And here's kind of not the funny thing, but the bizarre thing is usually people will do that surrounding what? Catastrophes, catastrophes, wartime, 9-11, COVID, this is it. This is it. This is, this is what he's coming. But watch what the word of God says. Look at Luke 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, people went on eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And so the point there is like people were just living life. They were living life. It was normal. It was a Tuesday. It was just Tuesday. Just a normal day, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, it will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. They were just living their life. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, it will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And so the funny thing is, Scripture actually says it's going to be on the most normal day, not on surrounding catastrophe. I actually think there's more scriptural weight behind it just being on a Thursday a normal Thursday, then it'd be like, wait a minute, see this catastrophe. This means that Jesus is coming really soon. It's actually not what the scripture says. The scripture actually says it'll just be a day, bro. Like it'll just be a normal run of the mill day. And so the more people are like, look at this and this is happening and the wars and the rumors of wars, it's happening. The more they catastrophize it and say, because of this catastrophe, it's probably coming. I'm actually like, I bet it'll be not now. It'll be on a normal day. Why? Because no one's going to see it coming. So that's one like hack. Here's another hack. When some people, there was a guy named Harold Camping. Maybe you've heard of him. Terrible heretic, false prophet who thankfully is now dead. But he at one point was pretty, not at one point, actually at several times, several points. He predicted when the Lord was going to come back and he was wrong every time. And then he didn't know one day and that was the day he died. And so he predicted when the Lord was going to come back and he was wrong. Since nobody knows when it's going to happen, here's how I roll. The more sure somebody is of it that it's a certain day, I rule out that day. 100%. So, like, it might be before the end of this sermon, but if you are, like, telling me it is, you are certain it's going to happen on November 6th, I know it won't because nobody knows. And if you're right, then that would make that scripture false. And so when you say November 6th, it could be later today, ain't going to be the 6th. Why? Because nobody's going to see it coming, and it's just going to happen. That's what the Word of God says. You won't see it coming. Uh, number five, it will be telling. It will be telling. Look at verse 31. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned around against the counsel and the wisdom and the direction of the Lord and turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. On that day, people are going to have gut reactions, instant reactions to the fact that Jesus is here that will be very, very telling about their values, their priorities, and their love for the Lord. There will be some people who will be like, this is what I've been waiting for, and there will be other people who are like, I've got to get stuff before it gets destroyed because their hearts and minds are more geared towards this day, this world. And instead of looking forward to what the Lord is bringing upon us, they're fearing what the Lord is bringing upon us. And they, in futility, will go to rescue like their cat or will go to make sure that this precious heirloom or this thing that they love or their money or whatever they value, they're going to go and do that. And so it will be telling. That's why he says in verse 31, the man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. The man who's in the field must not turn back because whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. People's values and priorities and their true love will be revealed as a result of Jesus's return. It will be telling. Number six, uh, it will be divisive. It will be divisive. Uh, Pick it up in verse 34. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And so as an aside, uh, raise your hand if you just now realized your Bible doesn't have a verse 36. Yeah, give it a minute. Raise your hand. See? There you go. Right. So you're like, this is divisive. i got a sham Bible. I'm out of here. Like, that's, Yeah. Don't be concerned, There's early, the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke didn't have the verse that is in verse 36. People think that some of the translators probably copied it over from Matthew's Gospel because it is in Matthew 24. And so whenever you find that, just as an aside, in your Bible, that's not a reason to like throw out your Bible or doubt the veracity of Scripture. When you find a verse, and a little footnote that says, by the way, this verse, we're not super sure if it was in the original manuscripts. Just read the chapter without that verse and see if it changes anything. It doesn't. It doesn't. Or if you say some, ma- if your Bible says, "Hey, some manuscripts contain this verse," add it on in. See if it changes anything. It doesn't. And so don't don't let those variants like any any ancient text is going to have textual variants, but it never undermines the bedrock of our faith. It's never like my Bible says Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Should I be concerned? Like that's that's not what you'll ever find. It's never like my Bible says Jesus isn't God. Should I like? In the Bibles that we have that are not written by cults and that are written and translated from the original Hebrew and Greek, there's going to be variations, but they're never going to impact the whole meaning of the text. And so you look at it and you say, is it scripture or is it scriptural? And so is it true that someone in the field shouldn't, like, should be alerted? Yeah, it is. Does that make sense? So don't be concerned about that. Anyway, the point Jesus is making here is when he returns... All that will matter will be love for him or lack of love for him. Faith in him or lack of faith in him. And people will be taken in judgment or left to escape judgment and enter God's kingdom. But it will be divisive. And there won't be, uh, I love Jesus and, hey, this is my friend. He's with me. If he could just, surely you have extra room. Can he just, no. Boom. Boom. Those who love Jesus will not be judged. Those who don't love Jesus will be judged, and there's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And at that point, it is literally too late to make any changes, which brings us to our final point, point number seven. Uh, it will be fatal, and it will be final. It will be fatal, and it will be final. Verse 37, where, Lord, they asked him. And, and they're asking him that because they can't understand, like you and me, this is a global catastrophe. Not like global in that it's happening here and could eventually get here. And so we're hearing about, we're hearing about it on the news that it's happening in this location. And I bet it, it's not that. We're all watching it in real time at the same time. It's global. And we can't picture that because you're like, nothing's that way. Like if it's sunny here, it's dark there. If it's like, yeah, I don't know. Just trust me. Everyone's going to see it. At the same time. And so they're like, where? Because they're not really grasping that, which is understandable. Where is this going to happen? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be. And so vultures are scavengers, as you know, and they're virtually everywhere. So Jesus is saying, it might be a Jewish proverb, we're not sure, but he's saying, this will be worldwide. Uh, the vultures will gather where Christ has been in judgment. Where Christ has been in judgment, there will be piles of bodies, and vultures will be having a field day. This is final. And this is fatal. And so I just want to pause just for a minute and ask you a question. Are you ready for this? Not the possibility of this. The certainty of this. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? I want to call your attention to the thoughts and feelings that you're having right now as I ask that question and may have had over the past several minutes as we work through this passage together. If you're hearing these things and thinking of what an incredibly big deal this is, and you are thankful that you have a savior and advocate. Uh, one who has taken the condemnation and judgment on your behalf on the cross so that you don't have to suffer under the wrath of God that is coming. This drives you to, like we talked about last week, to gratitude, to worship, to stand in awe of the fact that you've received mercy. If that's what these things do for you, praise God. That's that's wonderful. If you hear all of this and think, I don't know. If I'm ready, look at me. You're probably not. So like lean into that. Don't, this is not a feeling you have that you brush aside and say, I'm probably in a, just a bad mood. It's what I had for breakfast. I didn't sleep well last night. Eh, I might be ready. I might not. I'll, I'll probably be ready by then. This is fatal, and this is final. You whiff at this pitch, you're out. One of two things will happen to every person in this room. Every person in every room, every person all over the world, one of two things will happen. Uh, You will die before this happens and stand before the judgment seat of God, or this will happen in your lifetime and you'll be taken away uh, in judgment or allowed to live and worship the Lord. This is fatal and this is final. Our Lord's half-brother, Jude, uh, says this. He writes this in Jude 14 and 15. I'll just read it to you. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is fatal and this is final and this is certain. This will happen. And so today, if you hear these things and say, I don't, Think I'm ready for this. Again, you're, don't lean into that. You're probably not. Don't ignore that thought. Don't brush away that feeling. Let's once again begin with the end in mind. You want to be ready for the end. Uh, either the end of your life or the end of this world. You want to be ready. And we just spoke about the end. That's fresh in our minds. Let's, let's take a step back and let's look at point number two. You're not ready for Christ's second coming if you don't rightly understand his first coming. You're not ready for Christ's second coming if you don't rightly understand his first coming. Uh, You know what these Jews and these Pharisees missed? The reality that the kingdom comes, watch, first in people's hearts as believers. First in people's hearts as believers. After that is a visible kingdom of God that comes with Christ's second coming. See, the Jews and Pharisees actually didn't expect two comings of the Messiah. They expected one. They weren't looking for a savior who would be their sacrifice for sins because they already saw themselves as righteous, like plenty able to enter the kingdom of God on their own. What the Jews were wanting will actually be seen in Christ's second coming. But you, just like them, won't be ready for his second coming if you don't rightly understand his first coming coming. That's why Jesus says what he does to Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 3. It's in your outline. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God. And this can't be understood by just anyone. Stephen Covey, great mind, great author, solid speaker, still has influence, is in hell. Because when he died in 2012, he died as a Mormon. And he didn't just die as a Mormon, he died as a Mormon who trained other Mormons. And so Stephen Covey did not get the end. He, would, he, you can, he can say all the time, like, begin with the end in mind, but he had his eyes on the wrong end. And like I said, you get one shot at this, and one shot only. And you say, how could a brilliant mind like Stephen Covey's miss this? Because it's not about brilliance, that's what we hear about from Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 in your outline, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are a folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so looking back on our text today, Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 20, he's being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, oh, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That's not, not now. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That word behold, it's a Greek word, edu. It's used to introduce a shocking statement. Okay? When you see behold, you think buckle up. That's what I think. When I'm reading the scriptures and I see behold, it's never like, behold, do you have the time? It's never a casual thing that follows behold. It's like, behold, buckle up. Uh, Behold is the angel talking to Mary, behold, I bring you tidings, you know, like glad tidings of great joy or, or to the shepherds or whatever. That's good news, but it's also like, first, I'm not going to kill you. And second of all, I'm about to rock your world because unto you this day is born in the city of David, a son. It goes on and on like, buckle up. Here we go. And so Jesus here is saying, behold, buckle up. And then he's saying something to totally rearrange what they're thinking. In the midst of you. That actually, those five words, those five words is actually one Greek phrase, entos. It's used two times in the New Testament, once here and the other time to describe the inside of a cup. That's it. And so it literally means inside. Behold, buckle up. The kingdom of God is actually inside of you. But now track with me. It's a hard phrase to translate because the crowd listening to Jesus would have run the gamut, right, of disciples to people, to the Pharisees who hate him, to curious onlookers, some interested in being close to him to be more like him, others interested in being close to him so they could kill him. I mean, it was lovers of Jesus, haters of Jesus, the saints, the aints, and everything in between. So Jesus is communicating the reality that the kingdom of God is spiritual and in some of you, but not all of you. In some of you, but not all of you, because he wasn't just surrounded by people who believed in him. Behold, the kingdom of God is among you might be a better translation or, but that's what's being communicated when Jesus says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. in other words, he's saying, you're looking for the wrong things. You're looking at the wrong place. Stop looking for the signs and wonders and cosmic events that would happen to usher in the kingdom of God because if that will come, but if you don't have the spiritual kingdom of God inside of you before that visible kingdom comes of God in your presence, you'll think the second coming is the first coming and everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus at his first coming will be judged and condemned with no means of escape at his second coming because it's fatal and it's final. Which brings us to our final point, which says this. Nothing prepares us to enter the kingdom of God other than the gospel. Nothing prepares us to enter the kingdom of God other than the gospel. See, this became the message of the early church, which is exciting for us as we enter this holy week, right? Today's Palm Sunday. This Friday, we celebrate Jesus' death on Good Friday. One week from today is Easter Sunday. We celebrate his glorious resurrection from the grave, And after Jesus rose from the grave, he remained on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And you know what he did? He prepared his disciples to prepare others to enter the kingdom of God. And it's inseparably inseparably linked to the gospel. Why? Because they too began their ministry with the end in mind. Because in order for people to be ready for the end, for the second coming of Christ, they had to first acknowledge Jesus as king based on his first coming. And so in Acts 1 and verse 3... Uh, Luke tells us this. He presented himself, he Jesus, alive uh, to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist ministry in your outline. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Paul in Acts 14, verse 21 says this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many Made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that what? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's inseparably linked to the gospel. Later on, Paul is in Ephesus. And in so doing, Acts 19, verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And later on in Acts 28... Paul met with the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome. It says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. The only way you will be ready for Jesus' second coming is by acknowledging him as king because of his first coming. The only access that you will have to the kingdom of God is through the good and glorious news of the gospel. Turn, if you would, or scroll to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. take a look at verse 9. Paul says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let's stop there. That's horrible news. Bad news. None of us are righteous. Literally none of us are righteous. In In and of ourselves, not righteous, undeserving, unworthy. And so right there, it's like, well, that's bad. Uh, then he goes on. He says, do not be deceived. Then he names literally every one of us. Literally every one of us. Neither the sexually moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He said the greedy won't inherit the kingdom of God. He said, we just came out of a whole series on what? Idols of the heart. He says idolaters will not, not they might have a harder time, they have to pay extra tax. It says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you, right? I'm talking to you, is what Paul is saying. And then there's a major shift in the mood. Because it says, but you were, say it, you were what? You were washed. Say it with me. You were sanctified. Say it with me. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's great news. That's phenomenal news as we prepare to reflect as a church, as a church family, on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because you are not worthy to enter the kingdom of God. I am not worthy. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you know what? Such were some of us, but God has washed us He's justified us. He's sanctified us. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. And that's the good news of the gospel. That if you believe that what Jesus did on the cross on behalf of sinners, unrighteous, who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross on your behalf and on my behalf, and you say, I'm putting all of my eggs, Easter joke, eggs in one basket, there it is again, I'm putting all of my faith and trust in that one, one payment, that that really was enough, you will be saved. And you need not fear the second coming of Christ or your death, because it's just a uh, a means of passing from this life to the next. But if you're not ready, ask yourself why are you not ready and what is stopping you from being ready and why do you not? Not why aren't you perfect, but why do you not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Why don't you trust him for salvation today before it's final, today before it's fatal because today is the day of salvation. For all of us who are breathing, For all of us, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, for the good news of the gospel. Uh, And we are grateful for your word that we look to and understand more about uh, these amazing things that we can't picture. But we know that we should either be very fearful or very excited and nowhere in between. And so, Lord, for those of us who read this and think, that's my God, that's my Savior, I'm gonna be, when he, I can't wait for him to come. It's going to be great. Lord, would you rekindle within us as we prepare to celebrate the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus this week? Oh, Lord, stir our hearts afresh and anew because of the good news of the gospel. But Lord, I know that this is very frightening to some. Terrifying. Lord, would you use that to draw people unto yourself? Would you use this message that is glorious news for some and terrible news for others to cause people to look to you for salvation? And would you save souls for your glory and their good? In Jesus' name, amen.